Uh, my name's Nick. Welcome to Mercy Hill. One of the elders here. Um, if I haven't met you, I'd love to. I know we're a little sparse out there today. I know we have some number of people I'm aware of that are gone. Uh, we got some people glamping this uh, this weekend. Have you ever heard of such a thing? See, you would have heard of it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You glamp? You're a glamper? Yes, I am a glamper. Oh, okay. <laughs> So it's uh, yeah, I'm talking with Rochelle about getting some stuff for the church, and she's like, "We're going glamping," and I'm like, "What are you you're gonna you're gonna camp on a glacier?" That's what I thought it was. <laughs> Far from it. It's glamour camping. It means it's not really camping. You know what I'm saying? See, my wife doesn't glamp, so I've never heard of this this phrase before. I I got one of those rugged ladies. What's that? I said she will when she's fifty. <laughs> That's probably right. <laughs> Anyways, I thought it was funny, but uh, thank you guys for being here. And uh, as Ian said, uh, love, love for you to be a part of um, just hitting the neighborhoods with us and whatever you feel comfortable doing, um, whether it's talking with people or just dropping off things on doors. Um, totally, it'd be awesome to have you. Um, next week, Megan and I are trying. Uh, if, in fact, if you have ideas you want to help with it, we're trying to put together just some some uh, little gift bags for any visitors and then also gift bags for every kid. Um, we're just hoping to celebrate with uh, the neighborhood, wanting to, wanting to get people, you know, aware that we're here and we want to serve and want them to meet Jesus. So um, I think that's it for me. Uh, you can open up your Bibles. Don't worry when you see that we're in the same text. Don't worry, guys. Don't worry about this. <laughs> it's uh, we're actually going to use it um, kind of as a as an entry point into a, a broader subject in the scriptures, um, which I'll, I'll get into that when we read it for a moment. So Luke two eight through twenty. Um, the ushers are coming by. Maybe you already got your Bibles. All right. Luke 2, 8 through 20. Um, let's give it a read here, and then let me pray, and, uh, and we'll, get, we'll get going. So verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby living in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, you... You alone are worthy of your people's deepest affection and highest praise. And yet, God, we so often relate to that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our affections wander. Our praises we so often give to other things. Our hopes set on false saviors, false gods. Jesus, I'm praying today that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, to praise your name, to delight in your name that the part of us that's divided, the part of us that's unsure of you and straying would be brought back into a wholeness of devotion, that we would be truly living sacrifices, offering ourselves unto you in worship. I can't make these things happen for myself, Lord. I... I can only beg you for it. In your grace, you'd come. I can't make these things happen for the people here. I can only beg you for it. By your grace, that you would come. Set us on fire for you, Jesus. Help us, help us to return with fullness of heart to our first love. God, for those in this room that have not even come to you at all, perhaps, or known you in that way, bring them in to the most intoxicating love story the world has ever known. Use this time for that end, I pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Um... Okay, so I know I've already spent a, a couple of weeks on on this on this text, and uh, as I as I mentioned here, I, I'm not going to be taking it through verse by verse or anything along those lines. But there were a few observations that I couldn't get away from. Okay, that I wanted to bring to you uh, in one way or another. I kept trying to tag them into my other messages, and, and there just never was room, never was time, never felt appropriate. And uh, so um, they basically become a message of their own here this morning for us. Um, we're going to use this text as a launch pad into the broader subject of worship 
And what I mean by worship here is what I would qualify as musical worship. In other words, the, the worship of God that is expressed from our hearts uh, in, in, in song and in music. And we're aware that worship, at least I hope so, although the terminology for some reason in the Christian world today is, is, is a bit muddled on the issue, uh, hopefully we're aware that worship is a lot more than music and song, okay? But it certainly is not less. Um, One way of of looking at worship, if I were to try to clarify the issue for us, worship of God, true worship of God, is to be as deep as a man's heart and as wide as a man's life. Okay? So it's it's taken all of me, heart, mind, soul, strength, and it's going out into all of my life. I'm a living sacrifice. That's my acceptable worship to Him. But one way, one expression of that heart love for God in my life is worshiping Him through music, song, praise. That's going to be our focus this morning, musical worship. Now, um, we ended last week by noting the linguistic link, and I'll I'll bring this to your attention again, uh, that Luke makes between the activity of the shepherds in verse 20 of our text and that of the angels in verses 13 and 14. There's a, you know what I mean by linguistic link? The verbiage, the language is the same. Okay, so when you look at what these shepherds are doing at the end of this narrative, they are they are praising and glorifying God. The very same thing that the angels were doing at the beginning of the narrative there, like I said, in verses 13 and 14, where we read that suddenly there was these, this multitude of angels and they were praising God, saying glory to God, praise and glory, praise and glory, angels, now shepherds. And the, the, what, I, what I drew out from that is that these shepherds are being, it's as if they're being folded in to the angelic choir. Okay? They're starting to partake because of this Messiah child, the Son of God, born now in the flesh, and what He's going to do, earth, well, heaven has come down to earth, and now earth is being brought back up into heaven. So the shepherds are folded in, and you and I as well, folded in to the angelic choir, singing the praises along with them of this child and of glory of our God. Angels' songs are now being taken upon human lips. So, if we're being folded into the angelic choir, then it follows, I think, that we can learn how our musical worship ought to be by looking at, by studying how theirs already is. Okay, this is where I'm getting this this concept of, of musical worship. If we're being folded into that choir to worship God in the way that they are, it would seem, then we can learn about how we're supposed to 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 worship God by looking at them as kind of our paradigm, our example. That's gonna gonna move us through um, in this message. I'm gonna note two aspects of their worship and consequently ours. Um, And then I'm going to close by drawing a line for us towards Palm Sunday. Um, 
Seeing as today is, is Palm Sunday, the day that we remember Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, right, um, for the last time. So, the first thing that I want to note, the vertical aspect of uh, the angels' worship. Hold on one second. This, I think, is probably the clearest when we think of musical worship. We think of the vertical aspect of it. What I mean by that is this, okay? This right here. There's an interchange going on between us, the angels, and God, right? There's this, there's this looking up aspect to our Worship, And you see that with these angels again in the fact that they are praising who? God and giving glory to who? God. They're looking up at Him. Worship is vertical. Okay? God is the primary subject and the primary audience, it would seem, of their song. They're singing about Him and they're singing to Him. This fact brings us back around to the dynamic I spent a lot of time on last week, namely the dynamic of revelation and response. So what we see with this, with this angelic choir is that this revelation of the Son is given there in the verses preceding. This child that's going to be born in an animal trough, the Son, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord... And then from that revelation comes this response as the curtains open and, and this multitude of angels is singing praise to God because of that grace, because of that glory. Revelation and response, seeing who He is and singing to Him in light of it, in response to it. Now, as we start to consider the church's musical worship then in this regard... It should impress us, I think. It should move us. It should give us pause to think um, when we consider that from the very beginning, God's people have been a singing people. You just sit back and think about that. Because the songs, right, represent this joy, represent this delight in the, in the object of, of the song. The one we're singing to, the one we're singing about, there's this joy. And what that means, the fact that, 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 that the church, the people of God, have always been a singing people. It means that we have a God who gives us, I mean, this is quite obvious, but it means we have a God who gives us something to sing about. In other words, we have a God who is beautiful, a God who is good, a God who is gracious, a God who redeems. And so our songs just kind of orbit around this redemption that God is working for us, this salvation that is ours because of Him. So because we have a redeeming God, His people have always been a singing people. Let me show you this from the scriptures. I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the Old Testament. Congregational singing. This idea of people singing together to God. First makes its appearance, actually, in Exodus 15. Exodus 15, um, which 
if you're familiar. And you can turn there while I discuss it for a moment, Exodus 15. It's essentially coming right, right, it's Israel's defining moment, okay? Um, They have literally just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. You have this kind of chain of events, all right, in the Exodus, where you've got these plagues, and you've got this Passover lamb, kind of the final plague, is the firstborn in Egypt is killed, but, but the firstborn in Israel is spared. And finally, get out of here! And God's sons are, it would seem, coming home, if, if, as it were, coming out of the house of slavery and into the freedom of the children of God. And they're sent out! And then, and then, and then, and then the enemies pursue, right? But the, God parts the Red Sea and they walk through on dry ground and then God closes the sea over as if it were a grave on top of their enemies. And then, as, as all the people of Israel are watching this go on and they're standing on the shore there, as they see this stuff, revelation of who God is, this redeeming God that's calling them out, Natural response, that moment is song. Exodus 15, it's just a song to him. Let me read you the first two verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. There's the vertical. To the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Him. It's just, He's the subject, He's the audience. Thank you for this. This is how Israel really begins as a people under their king, with song. And if you recall, it's awesome, it's awesome. Before the redemption was worked for them, when they were on the other side of the Red Sea, what did God tell them to do? Shh, shh, be silent, this was it. This is uh, chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. On this side of redemption, silence. On that side of redemption, song. The idea is, as far as working the redemption, you and I take no part in it. We just sit back and we watch. But when He has worked that redemption for us, then we take part in responding to it with gratitude, with joy, in song. From silence on one side, I'm not working the redemption, to song on the other. He has, and He is so good. Now, the congregational singing that was spontaneous at the Exodus event kind of erupting from them, is actually systematically incorporated into Israel, into the temple, into their their culture by David, um, King David. In First Chronicles 15 and 16, it kind of lays some of this out. I'll sum it up for you here, though. He's bringing the ark of God's presence into Jerusalem, Okay? And he's going to set up Jerusalem as kind of the capital now, as his home and the home of Yahweh, his God. 
And as he's doing this, it's awesome. It says he sets up these Levitical singers now, bringing in this kind of like official position. We need singers. Our God is so good. We need people. It's their job to sing all the time. And he sets these singers up by the ark and by the altar. And it says that they are to raise sounds of joy. First Chronicles fifteen sixteen, Raise sounds of joy. His house ought not only to be a house of prayer, but also a house of praise. Right? And they are to sing, these guys. These guys are to sing, these Levitical singers, day after day, in God's presence, the ark, and, 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 and in response to God's redeeming sacrifice, the altar. This is where these songs, these singers were raising the sounds of joy. He's with us. He's redeeming us. Let's sing. And of course, all of the redemptive activity of God in the Old Testament anticipates the fuller redemption that He's going to work for us in His Son. Right? The Passover, the Exodus... The, the ark presence, the temple, the sacrifice, all of it fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. A greater redemption worked for the people of God in the Son. The one that this text in Luke 2 is all about. And that's why in the, as you heard kind of, Paul talking about the new covenant community that we are as the church of Jesus Christ. That's why in the new covenant community, this, this, this song, the songs of God's people reach kind of the highest note. The highest note. Let me read you something from a guy by the name of W.M. Cloud. He's got an interesting um, observation that he makes here about Christianity and its singing community. There is no forgiveness in this world or in that which is to come except through the cross of Christ. Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. He's just quoting scripture there. Through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. The religions of paganism scarcely knew the word forgiveness. The great faiths of the Buddhist and the Muslim give no place either to the need or the grace of reconciliation. The clearest proof of this is the simplest. Now here he goes. It lies in the hymns of Christian worship. A Buddhist temple never resounds with a cry of praise. Muslim worshipers Never sing. Their prayers are at the highest prayers of submission and of request. They seldom reach the gladder note of thanksgiving. They are, now hear this, they are never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. Do you hear that? 
it is grace, you guys, that sets Christianity apart from all other religions. And this grace of forgiveness that comes to undeserving sinners from the cross of Christ evidences itself in the songs of the saints. Because we have known His forgiveness, because we know we're sinners and we know we don't belong here, and yet we're here, we are singing. There are songs coming from this place and from His people ever since He started with them back in the beginning, just reaching the highest note now with us, although the highest is yet to come, you could say if you read the book of Revelation. But no one sings, at least should be true, no one sings like the Christian. Because no one is as grateful and overjoyed as the Christian because no one receives the free and undeserved grace of God like the Christian. So it's my hope and my prayer, I mean, as, as we come together as a congregation, as a church in this neighborhood, that, that these neighborhoods would, st- would start to hear joy kind of reverberating from this room, a sound that just... What is that just causes them to wonder? Causes them to be intrigued. Because it doesn't sound like the rest of the world. We got grace. We got grace. Horizontal aspect. Let me hit this up with you now for a moment. This is actually the bigger burden that I had as I was looking at this. Because I, I didn't, I, I'd forgotten this aspect of, of worship, <laughs> musical worship, honestly, before. <clears throat> and it just shook me. But let me show you here for a moment. Let's return to the angelic choir. And I want to sh- show you this. While in isolation, the vertical aspect of the angels' worship seems clear. You know, they're praising God and saying glory to God. If you just read that, you go, okay, it's vertical. But if you read it in context, if you locate their song in context, in the larger narrative that surrounds it, what happens is another audience comes into view. And another, consequently, aspect of worship comes in to view. Let me show you this as we read around their song, preceding their song there in verses 10 through 12. What do we see? There's this incarnation announcement, right? And then these, 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 these angels, this angelic choir, shows up almost as if it, they were kind of like an exclamation point on the end of that announcement. As if to say, as we talked about a few weeks ago, don't miss this. It's like God's just drawing a big exclamation point in the sky right now. A multitude of angels shows up to praise. But that announcement was made to who? The shepherds. In other words, if they're showing up as an exclamation point there, they're showing up not just to give praise to God, but also for those shepherds to hear something as well. Make sure they don't miss 
this. Make sure they learn something about this. If you look at what follows the song of the angels, here's what happens. Our attention is immediately drawn to who? The shepherds. And the effect that this angelic choir and announcement had on them. And what is it? Oh, we gotta go and see. That was last week. We gotta go and see. I mean, this is for real. So this song, this song then, of the angels was not just to God, for God. Another audience comes into view. The shepherds. And there's our other aspect of congregational worship, musical worship. One another. There's this horizontal aspect to it. What we find is that as we are singing to God with all our hearts, we are also, and and it's very important, (laughs) we are also singing to one another. I started to relate this observation to the church's worship and and I was shaken awake by it. Because I, I think I'd fallen asleep to this reality, perhaps as an overreaction, as a worship leader. Uh, I hate the fact that I can sometimes be concerned about the audience, right? And how I'm doing. And so I so emphasize vertical, me and God, me and God. Ooh, close my eyes, it's no one's here, me <laughs> and him. I so emphasize that, that I forgot the horizontal aspect is is vital to the health of the church. And we're going to get into this. I had forgotten that we need to hear one another sing. I might be getting ahead of myself here. This awakening sent me searching for confirmation elsewhere in the scriptures. And... Um, First place I went was just some of the texts I already showed you there in Exodus 15, First Chronicles. First Chronicles. You can see it right there on the surface of those texts. Let me let me show you one of them there in Exodus 15. I want to see the horizontal aspect of worship. If I'm just off base here, or if this is for real. At the end of Moses' song in Exodus 15, Aaron's sister, the high priest there, Aaron's sister, um, Miriam takes up the mic, as it were. And she starts to sing. But here's the crazy thing. This is, this is down in verse 21. If we look back up in verse 1, Moses, we're told, sang this song to the Lord, right? There's our vertical. To the Lord. Miriam, down in verse 21, we're told, sang to them. The Israelites. The community. And Here's what she sang. Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. She rips off Moses' first line, as it were, but does it in such a way that she now highlights the horizontal aspect of congregational musical worship. She, In other words, she is singing This is what she's saying. (laughs) How did I put it? I'm singing to you to sing to Him. Sing to the Lord, everybody. I'm singing to you to sing to Him. There's our horizontal and 
vertical aspect right there. But even more convincing for me in this regard were the texts that immediately presented themselves in the New Testament. Some of them you probably know and maybe didn't even know what to do with exactly. I didn't, some of these. Let me read uh, probably the most prominent one to you here first in Ephesians 5, 15 to 20 is what I'm going to read. It says this. Do you want me to let you turn there? I always go, perhaps I go too fast all the time. Okay. (laughs) You're all sleeping anyways. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Verse 15 of Ephesians 5. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here it is, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I always wondered, honestly, I did. I wondered, what does this exactly mean? Uh, Addressing one another with singing. You want to know what I'm picturing here? Did you see the remake of Le Miserable, you know? Where the whole thing is, every word is a song, you know? And so they're going like, what are you going to the store for? Or whatever. It's like, is that what we're talking about? We're like kind of talking to one another in song? Or what what does this mean to address one another in song? Because like I said, when I sing, I'm going vertical. My eyes are closed. I'm not looking at you. And I thought, wow, seeing it in light of these observations I've been making in Luke, it seems to me that Paul is just simply bringing out the horizontal aspect of our congregational worship. As with these these angels in, in Luke 2, so we were making melody to the Lord from our hearts. But as we sing to the Lord, we are in that also addressing one another singing to one another. Second text, Colossians 3 from the New Testament. Colossians 3.16, very similar. It says this. You just have to turn over two epistles. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here it is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's Colossians 3.16. So, one way that we teach and admonish one another is by singing songs with thankfulness to God. Are you catching this? Teaching and admonishing one another, singing songs to God with thankfulness. How do we teach and admonish? One way? Sing to Him and to them, to one another. It's awesome. Here's a third one. I, I had never thought of this before, but in, in light of some of these things, I, I, I put it together from 1 Corinthians 14.26. Here's what it says. What then, brothers, when you come together together, 
Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. I wonder if you caught that. Especially if you're familiar with that section of the epistle. You're aware Paul is jealous that we use spiritual gifts to edify one another, to build up one another. And we get that probably when we consider things like a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, and its interpretation, right? That's building one another up. We get that, that there's a horizontal aspect to what I'm doing now. But he's saying, when you have a hymn, which is a song of praise to God, when you have a song of praise to God to sing, sing it in such a way that it builds up the church, one another. There's a horizontal aspect to our vertical worship. So what does all of this mean? And perhaps some of you, this is like, yeah, Nick, we get this, you know. But for me, it means something. I mean, the implications just spun out of this, almost out of control in my mind. I'm going to give you a few of them here. Why am I thinking this is so important? What shook me about this? First, and fundamentally, it means that I need to hear you sing. And you need to hear me sing to him. It means, listen to me, that no matter how bad, how bad you think your voice is, you're sitting there and you're thinking, I can't lift up my voice in praise. I'm just going to be a distraction to the people sitting around me. I'm just going to, people are going to want to walk out, not praise God. What these texts are saying is, your neighbors need to hear you. It's not a distraction. It's actually a blessing. It is ministering to one another as we lift our voices in praise to Him. You catch that? It means, hear me again, that your voice is just as important to what we're doing here as the voices that are mic'd. That's what I think I'm seeing here. We're a singing people. We're silent when redemption is being worked. We have nothing to add to the cross. But we're singing together as His redeemed community now that it's been accomplished. And that's everyone. You want to broaden out the Levitical singers into the priesthood of all believers. That's fine. Second, thing that this horizontal aspect of our worship means. It means that the concert culture that often defines evangelical worship, however well-intentioned, is actually perhaps misguided. This started to get to me because I, I mean, I, when I'm leading worship, I want it loud, you know? I want, it, I, I want it to sound good and all those sorts of things. And this started convicting me. Because what I'm reading here is that more important than hearing a few professionals singing is hearing all the people lifting their voices, you see. 
So, so, so we ought to consider, and perhaps not in this church because I don't think we have our volume too loud, but, but we ought to consider in some of these, some of our churches, turning the, the amplification down so, so that, and, and, and calling our people to turn their voices up. Because we need to hear one another. There's, there's, God is saying there's something important about hearing one another singing to Him. As I said, I, I, I love it loud. I do. But if the volume is so loud that we can't hear one another sing, or you got, and I don't mean to take shots, but you have some of those churches that pass out earplugs as you come in. Right? We know our worship is so loud, it hurts the ears of our people. So here's your earplugs. If we're doing that, it means we're, miss, we're missing something the Bible says is so important. And that is that we don't just hear a few people up there, but that we hear the congregation singing all together. As we sing to Him, we're singing to one another. This perhaps, and maybe you're in the same boat as me, this might just be taste, but this perhaps is why I find often those live worship albums to be more, they do something more for my soul than the polished studio albums. Because I'm hearing all these people, all these people, they believe in this God. They find Him to be glorious. They find Him to be worthy of their worship. And there's something that ministers to me in that. Third observation, what this means. It means that the closet culture that often defines evangelical worship, however well-intentioned, is also misguided. And by closet culture, I just mean what I was saying. I'm kind of prone to pulling away and it's just me and you here now. And I'm just singing to an audience of one. And, you know, and all of that, don't get me wrong, the sentiment is, is right on in many ways, in one sense. But I, like I said, I, I took that too far, I think. Where it's just, I, I lost sight of, actually, you need to hear me. And I need to hear you. And there's this important horizontal aspect to our, our musical worship. We're in this together. It's not just kind of privatized and individualized and we're off over here. That's fine. That's one aspect. But we're missing. Put, put the ember back in the fire and that thing gro- glows brighter, right? Perhaps that's an analogy that comes to my mind. Perhaps it's helpful. Finally, and, 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 and this is... This is uh, Something I'm going to sit with us here um, for a moment. Finally, it means, this horizontal aspect, means that worship is war. Here's what I mean. I should point out, do you know that the angelic, they're not called an angelic choir in Luke 2? You want to know what they're called? The angelic host. You know what a host is? It's not the person that takes you to your seat at a restaurant. It's an army. These are warriors. They fight with song. There's a war going on, and, and, and singing is a part of it. Okay? Why do I say that this horizontal aspect means that worship is war? The reason why... It's so important that we hear one another singing horizontally is that we're not always there in our heart 
vertically. I'm not always coming into this room, I mean, even this morning, feeling like, oh, I'm just overflowing with praise for God and what He has done for me, right? Sometimes we come in depressed and just feeling condemned and like in the dirt, like, what am I doing here? Whatever. But you walk in and you hear a little bit, you hear a little bit of heaven. As people start to raise their voices up and praise this one who saved them, who's taking care of them. So the, the, the horizontal and the vertical work together. As I hear you, as you hear me, suddenly by the end of this, I'm starting to feel, starting to add my voice to the melody line. Right? We are a wilderness people. Okay? We are a wilderness people. And as Paul put it in Ephesians 5, the days are evil. I wonder if you noticed that in the context. He says the days are evil there. (laughs) Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. The greater Pharaoh, Satan, has been overcome. We have been brought out of the house of slavery and into the freedom of the children of God, but we are not yet home. We find ourselves in the wilderness. We are a wilderness people. Hang with me for a moment. Israel passed through the Red Sea, right, on on dry ground. And their enemies overcome. And as they're standing there looking back at the waters and all that God's done, they're singing, right? We already covered that. But as that kind of last melody line kind of echoes away and they turn around, start to look at what's ahead of them now, they realize we are not in the promised land yet. Oh, no. (laughs) We're in the wilderness. And worship is hard in the wilderness, Praising God is hard in the wilderness. That's why the next time we're going to hear this Israelite congregation singing, you want to know what they're singing about? It's not about Yahweh and His redemption. No. They're singing around the golden calf, a false god. Yahweh didn't deliver. We're in the wilderness. This Here is your God, O Israel. And they're singing now to a false God. You see, affections wander in the wilderness. Hearts go cold in the wilderness. We start looking for false saviors, false gods in the wilderness. Worship is a war in the wilderness. And that's why we need to hear one another singing, praising God for His glory and grace in the wilderness. How do you war when the days are evil? This is his, the flow of his thought. You address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You're in the wilderness, the evil days. You need to hear one another sing because your affections are going. (laughs) You're looking for something to get you out of the wilderness. We really need Him to get us through. When you sing to Him, when I sing to Him, 
And we hear one another. We are helping one another fight for faith. We're saying, don't look anywhere else. Don't look to the golden calves of Silicon Valley. Look to Him, right? You come in feeling condemned. You don't want to lift your voice. Just guilty and dirty. And then you hear the children of God start singing, Jesus paid it all. All the whom I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. You start hearing voices lifted up to Him like that. Suddenly, by the end of that song, I pray, you find yourself wanting to sing. If these sinners believe in Him for that, maybe it's for me. Let me close with Palm Sunday here. I'm going to draw a line from our discussion of Palm Sunday, and it's actually a lot straighter than you would think. I don't have to do much work to get us here, quite honestly. It's interesting. Because virtually the same song that's sung by this multitude of angels over the humble birth of Christ is now sung by a multitude of disciples over the humble entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Glory and peace. Well, let's hear what these guys have to say. Luke 19, 37 to 38. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Language is very, very similar to the song of the angels back in Luke 2. Except, here's what what we note. Where the angels' song has served as such an inspiring example for us, I hope, These disciples' song here, this multitude and their song here, serves actually as a sobering warning. We have an inspiring example, and now we come to a sobering warning. Their praise um, is purer than their hearts. In other words, they got the right lyrics to their song, but for the wrong reasons. They're thinking he's come to deal with Rome, it would seem. The king has come! He's going to claim His kingdom back from Rome. The Messiah is here. It's easy to praise Jesus when we think He's saving us from Egypt or Rome, but He's come to save us from our sins. And natural man doesn't get it, nor, in fact, does he even want it. I love my sin. So they don't see what Jesus is coming to do. That's why, that's why. Give it a week. Give it a week. And these songs of joy are going to turn into, at best, wails of pain, cries of disappointment. At worst, screams of utter rebellion and rejection. Crucify Him. Many scholars would say a lot of this same crowd that's here would be a part of that multitude that's crying out for the crucifixion of the Messiah just a week later. He let us down. We're still in the wilderness. He's not going to save us like we thought. Get rid of Him. Crucify Him.
joy turns to, to cries of disappointment, pain, rebellion. One thing is certain around the cross. No one is singing. No one. No one sees what God is doing. No one gets it. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And yet, now, as the redeemed New Covenant community, because what Jesus has done, every one of our songs ought to orbit around the cross. But here's the deal. We need one another. This worship is a war. Okay? It's still hard to see glory in a crucified king. It's not hard. It's not a war. It doesn't take a war to sing the praises of a conquering king. Merely. Comes in and takes care of Rome, takes care of Egypt, takes care of your life and everything, all your problems done away with. It requires a war, a community at war together, worship war, to sing the praises continually of a crucified and conquering king. It's hard to see glory there sometimes as we're in the wilderness. It's hard to feel what we ought to feel, right? And that's why we need one another so that there can be singing around that cross of shame. We see it as the power of God to save. He saved us. So I'd encourage you, don't hold back your voice from the angelic choir. I need to hear you. You need to hear me. This worship war. Let's pray. God, you are, I mean, make no mistake about it, you are the one we sing to. We just need help from one another. Keep our affections there. God, would you use even this last song to bring us closer in to the glory, to the wonder of the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.